I'd like to begin today by talking about the greatest cinematic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ ever to hit the big screens. You guys know what this is, right? The greatest cinematic expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Karate Kid. You didn't know this. You're unaware. It's been a long time since some of you have seen it, probably. It's been a while. So let me refresh your memory on the greatest cinematic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So who's our hero, our main character? He's a guy who moves in from out of town. We don't really know much about him. He's from another place. But he comes in with his mom. And they move in, and he's immediately confronted by the enemy. And who is the enemy depicted as? Death skeletons, and they're ready to attack the hero, but the hero has a powerful person behind him that will enable him to defeat the bad guys. That person is Mr. Miyagi. Now, Mr. Miyagi has a certain term that he uses to call our hero, the Karate Kid, Daniel-san. Now, this is just a honorific Japanese title. You attach san to the end of someone's name. It's a way to show someone honor in Japanese culture. However, to the English-speaking ear, you don't hear Daniel-san, the honorific Japanese title. You hear Daniel-san. Hmm? He's the son. And who must the son face in final battle? The bad karate guys? Yes. But what is the emblem on the back of the bad karate guys? the serpent, Cobra Kai. He's not just fighting somebody in the abstract. He is fighting Cobra Kai, Team Serpent. Now, the emblem on the back of the sun, our hero, the karate kid, the image of the garden, the bonsai tree, the tree of life. The hero wants to defeat the serpent and take you back to the garden. Now, at this point, you're probably going, oh, okay, a little bit of a stretch here and there. A little bit of a stretch, okay. Oh, ye of little faith. Let me break it down for you real quick, okay? The serpent one must face the sun in final battle. And how will the serpent try and defeat the hero? Sweep the leg, Johnny. Sweep the leg. The serpent strikes at the heel of the sun. And the sun goes down for the count. It is a KO. He's not coming back. They don't leave him in the ring. He goes... The doctor says it's over. And who's there crying as it's over? Mom and girlfriend, they're there, done. He's out for the count. They are going to present the trophy to the serpent dude. But then our fatherly figure does some weird supernatural stuff and heals Daniel's son. And someone announces that the fight's not over. As the trophy is about to be presented to the serpent, a woman announces that the son is not defeated and he's coming back into the fight. And how does the son finally defeat the serpent? In cruciform display, <laughs> he strikes at the head of the serpent for the death blow. Good night. Now, this, this story is ultimately, though, a, a mirror. It's a mimicking of another story, a greater story, the story of a different heavenly visitor who came in peace, who died and came back to life. 
E.T. the extraterrestrial. Hmm? With the glowing heart, dead and alive, come to bring us peace from another world. So in our stories that we tell, there's always elements and allusions to the greater story, the gospel story. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. If you examine movies, these concepts, these, idea, t- these ideas, the narrative structure and plot of the gospel is embedded in, in many of the best stories that we tell. And sometimes it's so painfully obvious that people who come up with the stories in the movies, they, they want to make it clear to you. It's like they're not even trying to hide it. They know exactly what they're doing. So Superman, his real name is what? It's a trick question. Everyone's going to say Clark Kent, but the real comic book geeks know it's not Clark Kent. That's his human name. It's Kal-El. Well done. Well done. Kal-El, because he belongs to the house of El. His father's name is El. So the last name part of that, Kal-El, means house of El. He's the son of El. You know, you know what El means in Hebrew? God. And if you think I'm just making stuff up, the two people who originated the Superman story were Jewish men. They knew exactly what they were doing. Call sounds like the Hebrew word for voice. So Superman is the son of God and the voice of God, and he's sent from another world to save humanity. Now, in the last trilogy of Superman movies, this gladiator, um, People didn't like these movies, and, and for, for a lot of reasons, but I want to show you how all the stories we're telling, we're just, we're just working through this. So this is Superman's dad, and he tells the son of El, Superman, that he must save humanity. He must bring them salvation, and salvation is found where in the Man of Steel, the last Superman movie? Salvation is found, according to his father, in the blood of the son. And as Superman hears this, he receives his mission, and he obviously, it's so, so painfully obviously, descends to earth in the shape of the cross. Now, throughout the movie, Superman confronts people who symbolically represent the dead, skeleton faces, and they're just reaching out to touch him, hoping that they could touch the Superman and maybe receive healing. And if you're familiar with the gospel stories, that should be familiar. Ultimately, Superman is innocent, but he's brought to trial. They put him in handcuffs because they're worried that he might be guilty, but everyone knows he's Superman. He could break through the handcuffs, but he willingly submits himself to the human authorities to face trial. After Man of Steel is another movie, Batman versus Superman, and that movie ends where Superman has to fight this devil demon creature, okay? And the only way that the movie can bring resolve and reach its climactic ending is Superman has to lay down his life to kill the demon creature from the other world. And so in killing the enemy, Superman dies as well. They take his body down from his place of death, and this image with Wonder Woman, Lois Lane, and Batman should remind you of something. It's in tons of paintings throughout history. This is where they take Jesus' body off the cross, and the woman, the mother, Mary, they mourn over him. Now you're going, okay, maybe. These guys know what they're doing. Look in the left-hand corner, top left-hand corner. There's three crosses. They know what they're doing. They're using the element and narrative structure of the story of all stories to get you to a certain place. Ultimately, though, Superman's buried, but he's not going to stay dead. He has to come back to life. Of course the hero has to come back to life. But we know this story and so many others are pointing to a greater story, a story of someone who had humble beginnings, who loved his people, who would go into the desert wilderness there and leave the desert wilderness to face the enemy, his enemy, all 
to provide for his people, the church. And we know that man is Nacho Libre. (laughs) Now, okay. But this story is pointing to a greater story of the one, the one, the one who was prophesied of old, the one who would fight climactically evil, he would end the slavery and bondage of his people and take them to spiritual Zion. And even though he had physical might and physical power, he would not do so to defeat his enemy. He would have to lay down his life to bring his people out of slavery into Zion. And that man is Keanu Reeves. (laughs) In the Matrix. Can they make it any more painfully obvious? Ooh, the cross. So what's the point? And that's the last one, I promise. We can go on forever. They're everywhere. All of the good stories we tell have elements and, and plot structure points taken from the story of all stories. It's like embedded into our consciousness. It, it occupies the space of the unconscious realm. We long for these stories to be true, and we tell ourselves these stories again and again and again. All of the stories are just sort of taking the same structure and dressing them up putting different details on them, different settings, but they follow the same narrative structure. And this isn't just me kind of observing this. This is observed in multiple fields and disciplines across academia. Tons of scholars from different fields as diverse as anthropology, philosophy, psychology, and literature all see these elements of story structure being embedded in the best stories we tell. Probably the most famous person that many of you might know about is a guy named Joseph Campbell. He wrote about the hero's journey. If you've got some lit majors, you might be familiar with this. But he talks about the hero's journey appears in all the great myths of people. And I'm not just talking like American movies. I'm talking multiple cultures and multiple time periods across the spectrum. We tell a monomyth, mono meaning one. There's one story, one basic structure, and we just dress it up differently. In the hero's journeys, there's someone who, who is living a normal life, but then has to come out of that normal life to face some challenge or temptation. Ultimately, that hero has to go into the abyss, the darkness, the place no one else wants to go. And the hero is motivated by a desire to save his people or to save someone. So the hero has to go into the abyss. It has to go into the darkness. It has to go into the worst conceivable darkness in whatever universe the story is taking place. And that hero goes there and then comes out victorious. They are transformed, and their transformed person brings their victory to their people. And that monomyth, that hero's journey, that story is told again and again and again and again and again. Here's a quick chart that you won't be able to read, but on the left-hand side, there's six movies listed. Harry Potter, Star Wars, Matrix, Spider-Man, Lion King, and Lord of the Rings. And what this this picture does is it analyzes the plot points, and it kind of lays out how does the movie begin, where's the first twist, where's the the first action scene, da-da-da-da-da-da, and it maps them out for you. And it shows you how they're all basically doing the same thing. I'll show you a zoomed-out version that you won't be able to read, but just to make my point clear. It's the same structure. They're all kind of doing similar things in similar fashion. We long for those stories to be true. 
We see the same story being told again and again, and yet we still take pleasure in it. Some of you have watched a certain movie like 20 times. You know it inside and out. You know every single line. You know what's going to happen, but watching it still brings you pleasure. And, and the neuroscience is clear on this. You watching the story take place, even if you've heard it a thousand times, is somehow doing something in your brain. It brings you pleasure. It's bringing you joy. It's giving your life meaning. And often, many of us will want to be a part of that story. We want to like be a part of it. And when it's over, we're kind of let down. Multiple people, multiple scholars across many disciplines will say that the gospel story, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is sort of the quintessential purified version of all of these stories. Because in these stories, you have a good guy who has to face some challenge and go into the abyss, come out transformed and victorious. But the gospel story takes the kind of archetypical elements that are in all of those stories and takes it to its fullest extreme. So you don't just have a good guy, you have the good God himself coming from heaven. And you have him being tempted by the Satan, the worst of all things. And where does the hero of that story have to go? To the one place that all of our experience tells us no one comes back from. He goes into the abyss of the abyss, the darkness of darkness. He goes to death itself, the greatest of enemies. No one comes back from that. And he has to come out the other side transformed, bringing victory to his people, and we long for this to be true. It's embedded in our conscious. We, we learn, before we learn to compose complete sentences, children will be acting this narrative out. We want it to be real. So the question is, like, if, if we want it to be real, why don't we see more people believing it? If the gospel story is the story of stories, and we all technically somehow want to believe it, why don't we see more people trusting in it, more followers of Jesus? And it has to do sort of with the architecture of belief. Like, human beings, we're a crazy compl complex bunch. We, we have no idea what we believe, why we believe it. And even if you ever seriously try to examine what you believe and why you believe it, you should then examine if you live in light of what you think you believe. Because if you examine that, you say, like, we're crazy. Human beings are bizarre. We believe things that we have no reason to believe. We don't know why we believe certain things. And even when we know what we believe and why we believe it, we don't live in light of the said truth. For example, many of us right now are doing things to harm our marriages that we know harm our marriages, but we continue doing it anyway. And some of us might even want to stop said behavior and do the, things that's, do the thing that stops hurting our marriage but that behavior itself seems to have some type of power over us. So even if we know what we're doing and why we're doing it and we don't want to do it anymore, there's a power exerted on our will that keeps us from doing what we want to do. It's crazy. Some of you do things the way you raise your kids, and you go, I don't want to, I don't want to raise my kids like that. I'm never going to do that again. And you do it the next week, right? You're doing it the next week and saying, I don't want to do that again. I mean, think about this. We have more education on nutrition than ever before, but we can't even eat right. Like, and that's across the board. I'm not just talking to you people who are like, yeah, I have really bad eating habits. So like, even the most yoked out person in the room, the most in shape person is probably like, yeah, last week, man, I should have, I should have had the protein shake instead of that, man. I knew better than that. It's like, you don't have control over it. It's like weird. You can build better habits and grow in these things, but you know what's right to do, but you don't do it. How many of you walk into work and you know you should say something, 
you know there's stuff going on, and you want to think you're a courageous person that will stand up to the authority structures and say what's right, but you don't. You just keep your head down. How many of you have ever practiced or are practicing self-harm? Maybe undereat, overeat, cut, substance abuse? It's like you're harming yourself and you don't even know why. So belief's a, a strange thing. We don't know what we believe and we don't know why we believe it. And oftentimes when we know what we believe and why we believe it, we still don't live in light of such truth. The Apostle Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, brilliant thinker, theologian, philosopher, says it's because even though human beings know certain truths, we suppress those truths in, in sin. He goes even further to say that there are things that every single human being can know about God, but we deny them. It's not that we're unaware of them. It's not like they're not inside of our conscience and our kind of cognitive makeup. We know it, but we deny it. We suppress it. He says it like this, and it's, this is bulky and it's complicated. We don't have time to unpack it, but you'll get his major point. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. God's upset with some things. And, and it's because of the unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So you get this. There's things that you know to be true. There's even things about God that human beings know to be true. But we suppress those things. Like children who are defiantly resisting the love of a mom and dad. We cling to our idols and tell God no. And so even though we want to believe these stories, there's some type of suppression of the truth. And by the way, the effect of that is we become more and more addicted to the shadow stories. Our culture is obsessed with the shadow stories right now. I mean, we're beating them to death. It's like, it's like a movie gets remade five years after it's been just out in the theaters now almost. We get addicted to the shadow stories. They're fueling something inside of us. We long for them to be true. But we've kind of turned off this idea that God is real and that he exists. And in that way, it's sort of like we're living like it's Saturday. Friday, Jesus dies. Sunday, something happens. Something comes up from the abyss. But Saturday, there is no God. It's as if God is dead. And collectively, our culture lives in a way that says God is either non-existent, he's dead, he's not real, he's not involved in my life. So we live like it's Saturday. There's a story about an individual that parallels the story of our culture as a whole. So what's true of the individual in some sense is also true of our culture. It's a story of a young man named Michael Heisman. Michael Heisman on September 18th, 2010, walked onto a campus and killed himself. Now, the details to the event are haunting, are haunting. The location, Memorial Chapel at Harvard University. Memorial Chapel was originally constructed to give tribute to victims who died in the Great War, the war to end all wars, World War I. The time, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the most holy day on the Jewish calendar. It's a day where God is said to look at the sum total sins of his people and forgive them. So in holy sacred time and in holy sacred ground, a holy sacred life is lost. Now he was raised to be a good, religious, God-fearing boy. 
So how did he get there? He left behind a suicide note, and the suicide note may be unlike any suicide note ever in history. It was 1,900 pages long. And it was filled with a lot of, honestly, emotional ramblings and some kind of appearances of philosophical sophistication that, that, that really just were incoherent, but oftentimes it had profound philosophical insight. In it, he says, every word, every thought, and every emotion come back to one core problem. Life is meaningless. You say, well, how does this man who's raised to believe in God be a good Jewish kid, honor the, the holidays, how does he come to the conclusion that life is meaningless? He says this, The death of my father marked the beginning or perhaps the acceleration of a kind of moral collapse. The boy loses his dad, and in losing his dad, he could no longer maintain the idea that there is a good and benevolent father figure above. So in losing one father, he loses two. And when you lose the father, God, anything in the transcendent sense, he concluded that life becomes meaningless. See, he was just incredibly inconsistent. He says, if we're just all the products of, of random chance and there's, there's nothing else, there's no God, there's nothing transcendent, then life at its best is meaningless. And so you start to live like it's Saturday. There is no God or he's dead or he doesn't care. You live like it's Saturday. And Saturday is a miserable place to live. And right now our culture is living like it's Saturday. We've divorced ourselves from the idea and concept of God. We don't believe there is any father above us, no God that loves us, no God that cares. And we thought that might make our lives better, but we're actually miserable because of it. And the research is pretty clear on this. For the last two decades, anxiety has gone up. Depression has gone up. Suicide has gone up. People who say they are lonely has gone up. We're more connected than we've ever been in human history. You know that, right? We are more connected than we've ever been in human history, but more people say they're lonely than at any other point. More lonely, more depressed, more anxious-filled, more suicidal. We're miserable in every measurable way. And it's been going on this way, and it's been getting worse and worse for two decades straight. Suicide has gone up in every, nearly every state for nearly every year for two decades straight. Because Saturday is a horrible place to live. There's no meaning, no purpose, no, no transcendence. When you suffer in life, which you will, what gets you through it? See, deep down, we want to believe the stories. We want to believe there's truth to these stories. That's why we tell them again and again and again. We want to believe that there's something beyond the abyss. Whatever suffering is, whatever the abyss is in your life, we want to believe there's something on the other side. But we're living like it's Saturday. So I want to remind you what day it is. It's Sunday. It's Sunday. The story of all stories has taken place. The hero went into the abyss of the abyss the darkest of all possible realities, the greatest hero, not just a good guy, God himself descends to the place where no one wants to go and no one comes back from. And the Christian claim is that death could not hold him. 
and he comes out on the other side. So let me remind you, it's not Saturday, it's Sunday. Let me remind you about the story of all stories, the story which we long for and every story points to. God created the world, and he created a wonderful place for human beings to live in. He created it for them to thrive and to flourish. But human beings rebelled. We said, our will, not your will. We wanted to do things our way, not his way. And sin breaks into the world. And oftentimes we think of sin as when you do something wrong, which is certainly true. Sin is breaking God's law or doing something wrong, but it's, it's much more than that. Like sin comes into to the world and it wreaks havoc on us. So we don't just do wrong things. We, we're broken and flawed people. Like we're tremendously broken. We're train wrecks. I know some of you... Um, put yourself together so well and externally you got it all together all of the time. And so you're like, no, I'm not. I got it all together. Even all of that is a front to hide what's underneath. And what's worse about our brokenness and our sin is we just blame shift all the time. You point something out, and you go, that's, not, that's not my fault. It's because you don't know where I came from. You don't know what my, my, my life was like. Or, or something happens, you go, I did that because this person started over here. You blame what's wrong with the world with this group, or these people, or this country, or it's really, really like at an all-time high in our culture. It's just, whatever you think politically, all the things that are wrong with the world is the other side's fault. But the Christian claim is the radical claim that this sin thing is in every last one of us. It's in all of us. We wrong, we have been wronged, we're broken. I mean, human history is filled with violence. It's horrible. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ says that the king came and the king became the convict to die on the cross. He goes in to the abyss of the abyss, the most darkest place conceivable. And there he battles Satan's sin and death and comes out on the other side, transformed in resurrected power and glory, and is ready to share his victory with his people. Now, when you watch a movie, the lights come back on, right? And that's where you're like, oh, man, I could have I kept watching that movie. I could have kept going. And in a sense, you wanted the story to be real. You saw yourself as a character in the story. But make no mistake about it, no matter how good the story is, the lights come back on, and you're still you, and you still have all the same problems. In the story of all stories, the story in which all stories are reaching for, there's good news. It happened concretely, historically. And it just didn't happen 2,000 years ago, and then it's one and done, said, and let's move on. There is an open invitation for you to share in the victory of the hero. And the gospel says, come all ye weary, you who know shame, you know who guilt, you who need forgiveness, you women who have believed the lies of men in your life, you men who know what it feels like to be a failure, come nail that to the cross and share in the victory of Jesus Christ. It's an open invitation to come in. A pastor by the name of Tim Keller says this of the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. 
And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to extend that invitation to you. It's the invitation of Jesus, the hero of heroes, the king of kings, who goes into the abyss of the abyss to defeat Satan, sin, and death, to forgive you, not to condemn you, to save you, not to punish you. And he takes upon himself the cross, bearing its shame for the joy set before him. And he does this on your behalf. And if you ever doubt how much God loves you, go back to the story where the innocent one, the hero of heroes, descends to the worst abyss imaginable, the cross, the most horrific instrument of death conceived at the time of the Roman Empire. But he doesn't stay dead. I want to remind you what day it is. It's Sunday. It's Sunday. That invitation is for you. And a word for Christians. It was a word sort of for those if you're not following Jesus. Word for Christians. Like, do you know what day it is? Do you know, I mean, seriously, do you know what day it is? Because if you look around often, like with Christians, and, and this isn't pointing fingers because I'm like this. We're like, so, I'm so mopey, I'm grouchy. It's like, there's all these things going on with the world. You, you notice how like Christians right now are like, doom and gloom, this is what's wrong. This is, there's all these things wrong with the world because if this is the problem, this is the problem. Or you don't know how big the problems are in my life. You don't know what I'm going through. Do you know what day it is? It's Sunday. Jesus is alive, the tomb empty. The grave could not contain him. Death could not hold him. The hero of heroes is victorious. He goes to the abyss and comes out victorious on your behalf, resurrected in power and glory, ready to share his victory with undeserving recipients like you and I. Do you know what day it is? It's Sunday. Are you living like it's Sunday, like Jesus is alive? And so we're going to transition with the rest of service. And my challenge, for those of you who may not be following this Jesus, continue to explore the claims of Christianity, or maybe today is the day you say, I want to follow you, Jesus. I'm telling you, the story of stories is what you've been working on since you were a child. You've been playing out the themes and elements since you were a kid. You want this thing to be true. And it's not just a fanciful tale. Like, some people thought up a really good way of telling all the stories we're telling. The first Christian said, this happened historically. Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was resurrected. We saw him. We touched him. And they sealed their testimony in blood. And by the way, till this day, people are carrying on that story, sealing the story in their blood. This day will not be over before more Christians lay down their life for the gospel. Trust me on that. It happens every Easter. So, if you are not a follower of Jesus, there's an open invitation for you to talk to God and say, I want to follow your son. And if you are a Christian, we're going to transition into worship and worship like it's Sunday. Yeah, there's a lot of things that's wrong with the world. I'm the first to talk. That's how my personality is. I'm the grouchy, moody guy that's talking about everything that's wrong in the world. But it's still Sunday, right? Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles, but you better have courage because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. It's not Friday. It's not Saturday. It's Sunday. Let's worship our Lord.